All right. Well, good morning, good afternoon, evening, whatever time it is when you're seeing this. Uh, this is going to be the uh, encounter October or encounter lesson for October 24th. Um, that's going to be 1 Samuel 16, the anointing of David. And I'm just going to jump right into this uh, because I'm on the road again. Right back in Memphis. Um, so the lesson is the uh, obviously the anointing of David, uh, our prayer for illumination. Almighty God, you look further than what our physical eyes can see. You see the thoughts and hearts of all people. Through our study today, teach us the things that you value and give us sight to see the way you see. Amen. That's a good prayer. Uh, we always see a little different than God sees, and uh, it manifests itself in the way we interact with one another. Our memory verse is from First uh, Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that's First Samuel 6, 7. Um, so in the introduction, uh, Derek really just introduces us to the Bible uh, Project video and then also a discussion question, which I appreciate. The discussion question at the toward the bottom of page 45 asks, um, when was a time when you were underestimated? How did you respond? During your life, how have you had to learn the lesson that, the, that things aren't always what they seem? And then the question is, how does the character of God continually demonstrate his plan of using the weak to demonstrate his strength? Right. So I kind of thought about that. Um, like that's a pattern. God always uses either the weak or the younger, the slave that ends up, you know, uh, being brought out in an exodus or, or whatnot. When um, throughout the Old Testament, there's battles that happen with the prophets or with Israel. And uh, the point of it is that God always uses just a small amount of uh, people in order to um, claim victory or to get victory over something. Uh, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus talks about blessed are the meek or blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor, and, you know, um, hungry, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, it's it's this <clears throat> always the the humble or in a state of humility uh, that ends up rising. And a lot of times you'll see that uh, God will say, you know, that you know that I am God. So it's a demonstration of God's glory and power, working through the weak and the foolish things so that no one else can take credit. God is a jealous God, is what Scripture says, and he doesn't share his glory with uh, anyone else. Also, it's a reminder to us that we're not as great as we think we are. Like, when we work in our own power, it comes to not, but when we do something large for God, it's because God is working in us. And I would like to say, I've said this to churches before, even the church that I pastored, uh, oftentimes we just don't dream big enough. And so a lot of the work that we do, we do in our own power and we get our own results. But when we um, are consumed by a grand vision of God for the ministry of our church or for our own ministries, and we think, wow, that's too big for even us, that's when God has us where we need to be because God then can display his power in us. Uh, but it's also a reminder to us that we're not as insignificant and we're not as weak and we're not as useless in this world as we might think we are, because any 
any person that submits themselves to God is a powerful tool for reconciliation in the world. Any church, no matter how small you are, when submitted to God, can be used in a mighty way for the kingdom of God. And finally, I think it's a reminder that human flourishing is not found in our own strength, our own wisdom, our own might, but human flourishing, whether as an individual, as a church, or in society, is found in God and submitting to God. Or, as Christ says, picking up our cross and following Christ. This is actually where human flourishing um, exists. Might not be for us as individuals because being on a cross is not technically human flourishing, but it might be the vehicle by which uh, the world receives reconciliation and and understand or experiences human flourishing. All right, so that then leads us to the exploring the scripture section. So in that section, uh, Derek brings up the fact that the reason why Samuel is out trying to find a king is because Saul has been rejected as the king. He's still on the throne, but God has withdrawn his spirit and has, the text says, um, like, uh, it says that he regrets in 1 Samuel 15. God says that he regrets making Saul the king. So there's some theology there you can bring up if you want to in your class or to think about. Um, but uh, anyway, the background of this is, is that the people wanted a king. And then Samuel then becomes um, a symbol of the rejection of God by the people of Israel. Um, the other thing that the background of this is, is Samuel is kind of, you know, like, hey, you want me to go anoint another king, but Saul's still my king. He might kill me. We'll get into that in the uh, um, in the discussion question, but a little bit later. So anyway, uh, in 1 Samuel 10, uh, 17 through 19, Derek um, quotes this, and I'll just read it. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, you up out of, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said, no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So anyway, the people wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. And Samuel did much in the way of warning about taxes and politics and how your young men and women will go off to war and be servants to the king and all this good jazz, but they really wanted a king. And so, um, and be like everyone else. So what I would do when I was reading through this passage, I was thinking about taking a moment to understand that in some sense, what the people of Israel were doing wasn't necessarily rejecting God. They didn't see it that way. Like if you went up to the common person in Israel and be like, do you reject Yahweh? They wouldn't say yes. They would just say, no, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And so um, if you look through the Old Testament up to this point, you see this happening, right? So again, remember, people didn't so much see them saying, we're rejecting God, give us a king, although that's what end, ends up happening in, in many ways. But think about the uh, Exodus story when the Hebrews are going through the desert. Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days. They're lost. They don't know what they're going to do. Uh, and so they get all the gold together and they tell Aaron to make a golden calf. Um, this was 
probably uh, if you were following along in, in our encounter lessons from the fall last year, um, it's probably the god Apsis. And that god, the bull god, was, was a mediator uh, between, in Egypt anyway, in Egyptian culture, was a mediator between uh, god and humanity. And so the bull wasn't the god the bull was a symbol of connection with the divine. And so when the Hebrews asked Aaron to make this calf, they weren't necessarily rejecting God. They needed a manifestation of God for whatever reason. I've got some things written down here. I think it's a psychological need. Um, think about when somebody you dearly love passes away and you cling to some of their most treasured objects. Uh, maybe, you know, if your grandmother passed away, there's a necklace that she wore or, um, whatever it may be, maybe a, you know, some knickknack um, that you hold on to because it brings you memories, it brings you some comfort, a connection with that person. And in many ways, I think this is what this was. It was a psychological need that having a monarch filled. Uh, they said, God is with us because we have a king in some sense. The other thing that having a king did was it, in some sense, it's an idol. It created an understanding of God, like, right, God as king. You can see it physically. Nobody, they didn't have, they came from Egypt. They lived in an area where everybody had at least a tribal leader or kingdom or a king, and, and God was supposed to be this royal regent. That, uh, and so it was a way in which uh, they created an understanding of God. Yeah. However, the bad thing, like with idols or anything else, when we try to use some human symbol or whatnot for, for God is that we also in turn create God in our own image. Like, right. Once we put a King on there, we can tame God in some way, which leads us to the second is you can control God a little bit. So, um, you know, if you have an idol or if you have a King or a politician that is your substitute for God, then it's easy to tell God what to do. And so maybe that's a little bit of it, but those are some of the reasons why I thought is this is why, Israel wanted a king. But then also it probably made life easier. If you've ever been to a contentious um, church meeting where there's a weak pastor or maybe no pastor, maybe it's just led by a bunch of elders. I have a friend who has a house church that they explicitly didn't have a pastor, but it was elder led, which sounds wonderful. Um, but when it goes off the rails, who's the moderator, right? Who Who sets the who sets the course. And so that makes it a little hard. And so anyway, the context of this is too, that Samuel becomes the last judge. So you had Moses and then you had the judges that um, you had, you know, Joshua, but then you had the judges and now the judges are, are then swallowed up by the monarch. Again, even though it was evil, it was also the beginnings of the promise of a King from the line of David. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. I did want to bring up this discussion question, um, or at least read uh, what uh, Derek writes about the Cumberland Presbyterian Confession of Faith, section 1.14. God ordinarily exercises providence through the events of nature and history, using such instruments as persons, laws, and the scriptures, yet remains free to work with them or above them. The whole creation remains open to God's direct activity. So um, anyway, 
that's the Cumberland Presbyterian statement on providence that God is working out, even in spite of um, our bad actions. And in this, it's kind of like I've I've had children, which you probably have had. You might have had children. Sometimes you you reason just like God did with the Israelites, saying this is going to be bad. Don't do it. Don't do it. But kids are like, I'm going to do it. And sometimes you got to be like, all right, well, carry on. We'll see you later. And you let them do it. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but oftentimes kids learn from bad decisions. And maybe this was a step in Israel learning from, from a mistake. All right. Then next, um, the digging deeper section. Uh, Eric does a good job. He brings up the, uh, kind of the same situation. So the rest of that background is Samuel is called to go find a new king for Israel. And he uh, kind of falls in the same trap as the Israelites. And he's uh, activated by Jesse's sons, especially the tall one, you know, the muscular one, the one that looks powerful. Um, But then you receive that. And then Samuel receives that uh, word from God that says, don't look on the outward appearance more things change, the more they stay the same. Fast forward thousand years or so, uh, and uh, God or Jesus is in the temple. He heals someone on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are mad because healing someone obviously is bad. Um, And then Jesus says those words where he says, stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly, right? So um, anyway, it's hard for us as human beings because we get fixated on the external things. Um, so for the Pharisees, it was the keeping of the external law that was more important than human flourishing or the healing of a, of a human being. Um, and the reason why it's hard is because we like glitter and gold. We like flashy things. And so a lot of times in, in religion, uh, in church, oftentimes we work really, really hard on the, on the presentation, but not know so much on the material of the, so um, sometimes you're stuck in a closet, but you hope the material's good. Uh, and so, but the, you know, this production is subpar, um, you know, lighting and, and place to do it, but you try your very best. Most times you'd rather want the glitzy studio. Uh, and you, you know, it's just the way we are as human beings. We like glitter and gold. So anyway, but it is funny if we look at it this way, if you do a little recap, um, the background of this is that Israel wanted a king, right? They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted that external um, assurance uh, that God was with them. And so they were blinded to reality that God is their king. They, they were blinded to it. And then you fast forward a little bit. Samuel makes the same mistake. Like he looks on the outward appearance of a human being and says, this has to be the one, or this has to be the one, right? Samuel, the prophet, the judge also was like, ah, this has to be it. And then God has to stop them. Then fast forward a little later on, you know, a thousand years or so, 800 years, whatever, however long it was, the Pharisees, the religious people are doing the same thing with Jesus. And Jesus has, has to say, stop judging by mere appearance, but judge correctly. Um, it's just the way we are. Um, so the only way to really to combat that would be just, um, continually, um, question yourself, question your motives, see if you're in connection with God or so on. Um, now here's the thing, right? So like David is presented as this 
awesome alternative to Saul. But David was terrible too. So the discussion question is, knowing what we know about King David's life, how and why is he described as a man after God's own heart? It's worthy of a discussion. I think I've said before, one of the things about David is that in his mind and heart, he was committed to following God and he was terrible at it sometimes. But he had no, I don't think, you know, when he woke up in the morning, his intention was to follow God. And he did a couple times mess up, like really bad mess up, but he also repented when the time finally came for him to fess up. Um, and, and I think wanting to see God glorified, doing your dead level best to do so, there's something for that. And as a king, David also showed humility more so than, than a lot of us could. But I think humility, purpose, desire. Um, one of the preachers that I know told me one time that strengths are tied to weaknesses, right? So you think about powerful human beings in history who, who changed the world, but then they also had deep flaws. And maybe it's the deep flaws and the, the their, their power. They were tied together somehow. And so I think that's true, at least in my own life. Like, um, we're messed up people. We have our strengths. We have our weaknesses. When we identify our weaknesses or if it's exposed to us, then we repent and we ask for, we ask for grace and strength to overcome those weaknesses. All right. So I'm just, along with that, uh, Derek moves to the learning from the scripture witness of the church section. And I want to just read that first paragraph. Um, church history is filled with examples of God using the weak to shame the strong. God uses broken and flawed vessels to declare the riches of his majesty and forgiveness. Take a moment to consider the men and women we see in scripture. God uses sinners like David to build his kingdom. He uses flawed men like Solomon to instill wisdom. He uses closed wombs like Sarah, Hannah, and Mary to bless the hopeless. He used unqualified fishermen and tax collectors to declare the gospel. He uses abused prophets to declare his faithfulness. He uses adulterers and prostitutes to declare his redemption. He uses an enemy of Christ, Paul, who persecuted the church to become a great preacher and church planter around the Roman Empire. These individuals stand as enduring statements, not to the human spirit, but the enduring tenacity of God's faithfulness. All right. Um, yeah, so, like, we're in it. As bad as we are, we can be used by God. That's, that's an amazing thing. But the discussion question here is what I want to highlight. The Confession of Faith 4.26 states, As a consequence of temptation and the neglect of the means of grace, believers sin, incur God's displeasure, and deprive themselves of some of the graces and comforts promised to them. But believers will never rest satisfied until they confess their sin and are renewed in their consecration to God. So I think that this question will help answer the last question, All right? So <clears throat> being a man or human after God's own heart, I think is summed up in that last line of 4.26. Believers will never rest satisfied until they confess their sin and are renewed in their consecration to God. When you have a burning desire that nothing else in the world matters except you're becoming like God, loving God more, finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ, carrying your cross, these kinds of things. And that is your overwhelming desire that you can never rest satisfied. You're not content until you know you're in that progression. I think that uh, is 
that's pretty close to the truth. And maybe in your Sunday school class, you think about that. Um, number one, God gives us these means of grace. By that, we mean the communion and baptism and worship and the hearing of the word. It's worship. Like we avail ourselves of that. Even when we don't feel like it, we go because this is the way in which God reminds us that he's God is always faithful. He, he never stops regardless how awful we are. There's times maybe we take a break in our mind or in our heart, but man, that overwhelming desire to keep going, that I think is what makes people, people after God's own heart, if you will. All right, and then finally, I'll just highlight some of these discussion questions on the applying the scripture section. Um, first, how has God been gracious to you? Can you identify his gracious gifts in your life? All right, that's a good exercise to do every day. I've talked about the prayer of examining or uh, my professor from seminary that just counted blessings for the first hour he was awake. Um, I think this is just something you continue to do. You know, like, where have you seen God today? How were you blessed this week? Ask your Sunday school class. Number two, think back to a time when you thought a particular course of action was the best choice, but resulted in a terrible outcome. What lessons did you learn? How was the situation rectified? How did God correct the problem to bring glory to God's self? Um, sometimes we get in front of God. That's what happens to me. I'm like, I get an idea and I'm like, this is it. Let's go. And then like, you know, a month later, two, two months later, I'm leading and nobody's following. And I think, hey, hey, that's no good. And then sometimes what we do is uh, start manipulating. So think about the stories of Esau and Jacob you know, or, uh, you know, uh, the other other uh, stories of Esau and Jacob, I'm talking, I'm thinking, uh, you know, anytime that uh, somebody manipulates things for their own benefit, I can't believe I'm, I'm going blank, but they're all over the scripture. So there you go. Um, but we do that in our lives too. Instead of just repenting and saying, hey, we're, we're, we're off the beaten path we we manipulate and try to sell save some things that probably don't need save so when you get to that point best thing to do is just say all right i was wrong and get back in god's uh, god's good good favor third samuel was concerned for his well-being if he was obedient to what god had called him to do have you ever experienced this type of concern how did you respond all right so if you're a preacher in this time of year this time or me myself for me it's who am I going to make mad? Am I being too conservative? Am I being too liberal? Am I being in the middle? Am I making everybody mad? And so like when I write or do these things, I'm always thinking, all right, somebody going to get mad, you know, and I'm just trying my best. Um, but preachers during COVID, I'm sure have experienced this. You have a, you had probably a struggle on when to go back to worship, how to go back to worship, who's going to be mad or people coming up to you saying, I can't believe you had worship service or this is stupid. Why can't we go to worship? Right. So like y'all had to worry about that. And that's just a small little glimpse of how awful things were or are. But for Saul, it was, I'm going to go anoint another King. So this King is probably not going to like it, but so what do you do? You do the best you can worry about it and do, do what you think God has called you to do. Number four, the scripture tells us that God uses the weak to shame the strong. Why then are we reluctant to embrace and admit our weaknesses for the glory of the Lord? What is the root cause of our insistence on always being strong? He wants to be weak. Like it's pride. 
who, who really wants to confess sins, who really wants to say I've messed up, you know, so it's a lot better feeling to lie to yourself until, you know, you can't sustain it anymore. Uh, and then number five, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of being the ever-present king. How is your church proclaiming the presence of Christ in your community? What things can you do as a member of the covenant community to continue to proclaim Christ's rule and presence? Um, talk about worship and missions in your church. Talk about other opportunities that you might have. But um, that's all I got for you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And teach and preach well. Amen.